podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, My Path Takes Me Strange Places, when we talk about creatures you can encounter under the pale sun. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast My Path Takes Me Strange Places, we discuss the setting of Invisible Sun. This time we're talking about the creatures under the pale sun. Uh, so we did locations previously, and now we're going to talk about creatures again. So a uh, quick reminder about what the pale represents. It is endings and death. It is also bureaucracy. Um, and I think you're going to see that there's a lot of bureaucracy represented in uh, the creatures that you can find under the pale sun. Uh, surprisingly, to me at least, I wasn't expecting there to be uh, as much as there is. But I want to start out with a, with a real banger. Uh, I want to start out with a bleak horse. Bleak Horse has the best name. Bleak Horse is the best horse. <laughs> um, so when I was first reading it, I'm like, oh, is this like going to be like some weird reference to Bleak House? But no, it, it's it's a normal horse, but it has a ghost mouth inside its normal mouth. And I guess it bites you and inflicts terrible wounds. Like, I don't know, man, it's just a horse. <laughs> But it's a horse with a ghost mouth inside its mouth. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I really like Bleak Horse. Like, it's it's goofy in a way that I appreciate. It is endearing in it, the, the how focused its design is. Yeah. Uh, I guess if you say the design is, do you think we could fit, you know, the alien from Alien in Invisible Sun? What if, what if it was a horse? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Bodo's points if you make its blood acid. Easily done. Like, yeah, no problem. I mean, it inflicts terrible wounds. So maybe its uh, blood is acid that, you know, burns away your spirit. It's just that simple, folks. Um, all right. So there, I, I grabbed all of the creatures that, uh, you know, sort of represent the government of the Pale Sun. Uh, so I have notes for all of them in here uh, because I thought it was interesting that there were so many that were involved in, you know, this structure and bureaucracy that the Pale Sun also represents. And the first thing, first creature that we have there is the Gilded Ruin. And this is a large human skeleton. It's it looks like it's made out of pounded gold. And this thing is a peacekeeper and enforcer in the city of Catafalk. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, it looks good to me. Cool. Uh, you know, pronunciation is one of our favorite things to go over on our show. Um, so this is one of the the creatures that, you know, has some sort of um, role to play in the governmental structure of the Pale Sun. This thing is a peacekeeper. It's, you know, it could be part of the police force. It could be, you know, part of the military, you know, whatever you want it to be under the Pale Sun. But this thing is part of, you know, the giant wheel of you know, bureaucracy that keeps the pale sun moving at a glacial pace. 
uh, and this is this is the first of uh, a few. Um, oh, but I also like that this thing carries around a massive rifle and a long saber, which like calls back to you know early twentieth century military imagery to me. Does does that line up? Yeah, I could see that. I think almost of like a Prussian military uh, uniform or something along those lines in that, uh, fit, you know, early, early uh, uh, 20th century, like pre leading into World War One. Yeah. And speaking of leading into World War One, we have the Mortis Mephitis. Uh, this is a sentient cloud of moths and it's contained within an airtight, uh, an airtight leather suit. Um and it has a gas mask. And this was another one that, you know, it's a, uh, where is it? I think it was a, a soldier, a trooper. It's an elite trooper for the pale security forces. So here you go. You have another, you know, government sponsored creature. Um, and this one also calls back to that early 20th century, uh, you know, military imagery. This one specifically to like trench warfare of world war one with the gas mask and, you know, leather suit. Uh, I don't remember if this thing, Oh yeah. It, it carries a pistol and a long knife. Like a lot of the, the, well, okay. The first two creatures that I ran across that have something to do with the, you know, pale government, both call back to this early 20th century, you know, military imagery, which I found really interesting. Which could con- it would be consistent with having sort of the the steampunk Brazil aesthetic we talked about with locations. Uh, how so? Well, that if we're talking early early twentieth century pre World War One or, or about World War One era, uh, then having a lot of pneumatic uh, technology mm, yeah, uh, and okay. steam technology would would fit well with the architecture and the systems, and then you populate it with other with it, these creatures that fit with the same time period. Um, and while they themselves are not pneumatic or steampunk, uh, they could just can blend right into that scenery. Yeah. Uh, also it's a bodysuit filled with dead moths. And one of the special attacks it can do is, uh, pull off its gas mask and spray dead moths at its enemies. And I haven't noticed this. Maybe I haven't been tracking uh, this all along. But one thing I've noticed with both of these is these are very strong creatures defensively, which I have found to be essential uh, for combat in Invisible Sun because of the way the skill system works. Your players will be much more capable uh, in terms of their ventures at offense than defense, likely. Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So uh, the Mortis Mephitis, for instance, is a level five creature. Uh, with a good, you know, with, with fairly good health, uh, it's magic and requires those two successes. But on top of that, it has plus two to all defenses. So you're you're going to have to have two successes at difficulty seven to actually uh, hurt this uh, this creature. And that's actually not all that crazy, uh, given the uh, offensive spike we see in in characters after the first, uh, you know, really after the first tier or so. Yeah, um, the Gilded Ruin is a bit tougher, uh, but mm-hmm. I think the thing that really makes it stand out more is, sure, its defenses are better, uh, but it has more armor, mm-hmm. and there are some like, yeah, you can you can have an effect that does a huge amount of damage, uh, which kind of ignores you know any amount of armor uh, for the most part, um, 
but I think I see that most armor that creatures are getting is like, you know, one, two, or three. Three is on the pretty high end of where their armor is going to land. But three can be pretty significant if your players aren't dumping a ton of sorcery into doing extra damage. Yes, I think this is an interesting byproduct of the system I had not really anticipated, uh, but it allows simulating different types of strength or durability. So with the uh, with the Gilded Ruin, with armor of three, holding all else equal, us, us light weapons simply can't affect it. Right. And a medium weapon would only do one point of damage if it got through all of the other defenses. Yep. Uh, that's a different type of durability than, say, the uh, a, a creature that has high defenses, where it it's maybe hard, harder to hit, but once you hit it, you do a whole bunch of damage. Yeah, and armor is something that you can get over pretty easily if you're pumping magic into this thing. Right. Uh, all right, so the next creature we have, hey, it's another one that uh, enforces the rules of the pale. Um, we've got the pale rider, and obviously we have to include this because, I don't know, it's it's death. It rides a bleak horse, so I was going to include it regardless. Um, it certainly fits the tone. Yeah, I don't know. There's really not much else to say about the pale rider. It, um, I mean, okay, so it uh, it will, it patrols the pale. And it's enforcing the rules of the pale. So there you go, your bureaucracy again. Uh, and what it's really enforcing is that anybody that belongs in the pale, it's going to help them. It's going to you know help them navigate the pale, whatever whatever they're running into. Um, but those that don't belong in the pale, it's going to chase them out. So you know it's enforcing, reinforcing what the pale is all about. If you if you are dead, then you can you can stay here. If you're not dead, then you should probably get out of here. And it's you know it's death. Um, there there was an interesting thing that in reading this, yeah, it's it's a little disappointing to not have more distinctive abilities. Though one of its strikes renders the uh, basically makes the target unable to speak, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's but. Cool. Uh, it, it did raise it's getting back to this issue of sort of defenses and uh, difficulty levels because by again by tier two or so uh, your characters will be able to assemble impressive ventures if they're not because they're min maxing but if they're really trying at all to invest in relevant skills or things like that uh, those ventures are going to build up quickly so that it it has the you know requirement of of, of magic successes it has the uh, some very some uh some defenses which are going to pump up its level but those are only going to affect the attempts to harm the pale rider itself mm-hmm. um one of its abilities halo of the pale uh, creates basically an invisible wall that neither spirits nor physical entities can pass through this is i think an important power for this creature but since it's a level five creature i would assume that wall it creates is level five yeah i would assume if your players want to try and break through that wall they're going to be able to make a check for it and if that's the case at level five is not hard at all for characters to overcome Uh, so a lot one thing i found is a lot of these abilities are easy for characters to avoid unless you want to do something like flux to basically override their their roles which is not recommended very often yeah uh, so the use of defenses and armor to make these creatures more uh, durable 
still leaves open that, that their abilities themselves may not be very powerful. Yeah, um, level five, it's, it's not too hard to get over if you try. Right. I mean, so that's that's with no skills, with no venture at all. That's what a 60 or a 40 percent chance. But you could say nope, that 50 percent chance it was a magically created barrier. So you might require two successes to get through it. Uh, that's that's good because yeah that that makes a lot of sense and if it's magically created then then you're down to uh, what a twenty five percent chance to overcome uh, and also that'll be a little more durable to higher ventures um, so that that mm-hmm. that would I think that would be that would be smart since it is magically created and most of the abilities are are something along those lines I hadn't really thought of that I usually think of the as magical defenses because the two uh, it'll say magical and therefore two successes under defenses, yep. but that I should also apply that to the abilities when there's an active effort to overcome them. W- would you require that for, for the equivalent of dodge of a magical effect? Um, uh, wait, I'm not sure I understand. So imagine a creature who blasts you with, you know, magical energies. Yes. And that creature is a level five creature. Mm-hmm. So the blast is level five. Do you need two successes to dodge the blast? I think it really depends on uh, like how the blast is being generated. Like if it is, if it's a creature who is, you know, blasting you with a magical bolt, uh, I would say you need two defenses to get around it. Uh, similarly, if it was a dragon who's breathing fire at you, mm-hmm. I might not require two successes on that one because that feels more like. It's just blasting. It's just, you know, blowing hot air at you. You know, it's 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 a hard call, uh, but I think you just kind of, you know, weigh like, all right, how dangerous do I want this encounter to be? Like, I could totally justify like a dragon breathing fire at my players. Like it's using its inherent magicalness to, you know, help it direct that fire. And it's harder to get out of the way. It's harder to resist it. So you need magic to get over it. That makes sense. And, and I do think that I'll, I'll kind of apply it on a case-by-case basis, as you were suggesting. It, it depends on the narrative. It depends on how hard I want the encounter to be at that given time. But it's not clear in the rules themselves that if whether there is a right answer all the time. Yeah, and I, I don't think there is a right answer. I think you just kind of figure it out, figure it out as you're playing. Um, I was trying to think of another example, like, um, hey, let's use, a, let's say, a Marvel superhero. Uh, so let's say, okay, Scarlet Witch is blasting you with her, or she's using her, you know, hexes to mess with you. That's going to require magical, you know, two successes to, to mm-hmm. you know, dodge or whatever. Um, you know, she might be trying to, she might not be putting a whole lot of effort into it. So maybe it's like a level five, two successes required. Um, then you know, similar to that, what if you're also fighting with Hawkeye and Hawkeye, you know, takes a shot at you? That's probably that's only one success that you're going to need to dodge that. But Hawkeye's really good at shooting. So I might say, hey, this is a level 12 and you need one success to get over it. Yeah, but then you would want to directly play with the target value and, and, yes. and it, kind of understand the math of how much harder it is to get two successes versus one higher level success. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect example, but it's, it's kind of how I, I think about it. Like how hard so if, if Dr. Strange is blasting you with the flames of Faltine, 
but they're just regular flames or something like that. That it's it might just be one success, but he's really good at targeting them or something along those lines. I'm trying to think of yeah, other could be blasty like magic characters is hard to come up with because they all use magical fire. Yes, <laughs> I think for the most part, I sort of uh, default to just saying like, you need two successes on this one. Because it's a wizard. Uh, this wizard's trying to hurt you. Yeah, I haven't worked this out in part because we, we do so little combat in our group. Uh, but this is useful. It's, it's given me ideas on how to design and then adjudicate these situations. Yeah. And as long as you keep it consistent with the encounter, then mm -hmm. you're good to go. So if if you have Doctor Strange blasting you with the, you know, <laughs> whatever it was you, you said he uses. The flames of Faltine. Yeah, if he blast you with the flames of Faltine and you say, all right, this is level eight. You need one success. Cause he's, you know, he's really accurate with it, but it's just, you know, it's just a flamethrower. You can't come back in later and say, all right, he blasts you with the flames of Faltine, but he's really concentrating hard. And now you need two successes. Like, no, I don't, I don't think that yeah. would be cool. Like it you would, could you make need the be... difficulty harder, but I wouldn't then require more successes because now he's putting more magic into it. Right. It would need to either be a flux where you're saying some situation has changed or he's doing he's using a different ability entirely. Yeah. And I mean, that's another way you could do it. You could just say oh, he's not using the flames. Now he's using like, um, you know, more about Doctor Strange, but he's using some other spell, uh, which is more powerful and it is guided by magic to, you know, strike more true. So now you need two mm -hmm. successes. That makes sense. Uh, all right. So enough Marvel. Um, all right. <laughs> the next creature I wanted to call it was the patchwork crawler because, oh man, I love stitched together beasts, anything that's gross and disgusting, you know, really good. Uh, this is a massive serpent that's, uh, composed of, you know, it's the, the skin of all of its past victims. And I liked this one because it will sometimes awaken the consciousness of one of its victims so that it can continue to torment it. Um, so, you know, pale is the realm of the dead, but it's never really, um, it's never really interest illustrated as hell. It's not someplace that you go and get punished. This is someplace that you go and continue exist, e uh, continue to exist, even though you're dead, except this creature is out there eating these, you know, dead people in the pale and then torturing them. So, Hey, that's, that's fun. Yeah, a parallel to the a game I mentioned a lot for the pale, uh, Wraith the Oblivion. There, uh, all of the material of the realm is the same soul stuff. And so all crafted items inside that Shadowland are, are actually crafted from souls. And so while it is not a realm of punishment necessarily, uh, you can be fun punished by the bureaucracy and the hierarchy in uh, this, this game uh, and actually be just pounded into becoming a coin or a chair or in one famous case, an ashtray. Cool. Here we have a creature. It's not quite like that, but here we have a creature that where you know, they're consuming souls and, and be making out and their body becomes composed of these souls. So it does mm -hmm. give a sense that the soul is still vulnerable in, in its, in its way. It, not necessarily in a, in a sense of mortality where, okay, your soul is going to die, but in the sense that your soul uh, might, it might be worse that your soul might be transformed in some way that you are not particularly happy with, like becoming the, um, you know, the middle section of this patchwork crawler. Yep. 
Um, so the next one is, uh, I, I'm not really going to talk about this too much. There's a wolf-like beast called the Skarn, and it's a companion, quite often a companion to figures of authority and power. Uh, hey, it's, um, you know, bureaucracy again. There you go. Um, last, the last one I wanted to touch on is the, uh, summer, the summer vestigia. Uh, I like this one a lot. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't, I mean, it kind of, uh, fits in with pale. It kind of fits in with gray. Uh, but it's a, a flood of nostalgia for, you know, a, a day long past that never actually happened. Um, so, you know, it kind of feels like, you know, the nostalgia is kind of like, you know, it's it's reminiscing on the past and getting that feeling of, oh, man, things were things were great back then. And now that's over. Like there's that ending that's associated with nostalgia for me. And this is a creature that traps its victims. I don't know. It's not a creature, is it? It's just a it's nostalgia. Uh it's nostalgia that traps its victims in a false memory and consumes them, consumes them that way. I, I think this would be classified as an entity. Right. In game terms, this would be an entity. But I really like this one because I, I like I like creatures that uh, interact with players in ways that aren't just like, oh, it it shoots you with, you know, a laser beam. It does. Something right. Or the various rivals and pistols we've seen. Yeah. Like it presents a different problem. It presents a different way for you to interact with the players and threaten them um, instead of just, you know, brandishing weapons. Yeah. I thought this was, this is very, I thought this is, it fits the tone invisible sun very well. Um, and I like that. And it, it is, it's something my players would like a lot because it's not a creature as in a, you know, betoothed enemy that's going to claw at them or whatever. It is a, a challenge to overcome and one that's rich with role-playing opportunity. Yeah. Because if somebody does get trapped by it, there is a whole lot of stuff that you can go through to, you know, retrieve that person and see what it is that they in like what is it that they would be nostalgic about or nostalgic about and really explore that space and you know kind of define some new dimensions to you know these characters so this this has an entire session's worth of material built in right to the creature because you have someone you, 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 this implied story is someone goes missing you have to find this person you realize that they have been physically pulled into a memory of summer you have uh, a, an encounter or some time where the uh, the party is learning about this person's vision of summer, which could feed into a longer narrative. If you, that, that's how you kind of can connect it into a longer narrative if you want. You then have to kind of find the person within their uh, memory of summer. While when you do, of course, that's when you get close to the summer vestigia itself. And now the players have to contend with the projections of their own summer nostalgia. And you can just ask each character, okay, what is, what is your uh, not quite real memory of a good summer day? What is it? What is your character's version of this look like? And they have to escape their own personal summer nostalgia traps. And then it coax the victim out of their summer nostalgia trap uh, or somehow resolve that conflict. And that, that's, that's a, that's four hours right there. Yeah. Uh, 
So I guess before we wrap things up, is there anything else we want to touch on here? Well, I, I did find it interesting that, as, as you pointed out, so many of these creatures are tied directly to the bureaucracy. Yep. Uh, one thing that seems to indicate, but something that one could ignore, is that the pale is not a frontier with large scale, you know, large areas that are untamed and have, you know, this not even not even necessarily a hellish landscape, but a landscape of dangerous untamed spirits that. Most of what you are intended to encounter in the pale are representations of that hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And while there are areas we talked about last time that are sort of in a frontier where you could, uh, you wouldn't encounter these hierarchy representatives, but instead just crazy spirit creatures, um, they seem to, like MCG in writing this book, seemed to uh, try to incentivize people to really interact with the with with the bureaucracy, and that your experience in the pale is going to be driven by your interaction with uh, that element of the setting, which is just a little unexpected. They didn't have, that they didn't have more of just crazy spirit creatures that might eat you or whatever. Well, you know, you got that Patrick Crawler. <laughs> There's some of them. There's That's some, true. There, there are some out there. Like you can definitely have an adventure through the ruins of Pale, because mm-hmm. um, there, there's plenty of stuff in there for it. But it sounds like, in terms of the, the creatures, the focus there's a lot of focus on the hierarchy itself. Yeah, a lot. The bureaucracy, mm-hmm. a lot more than I was expecting. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, It really helps us out. Uh, We also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha- help people find us.